welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at three recent incidents of celebrities using their platforms to spread anti-Semitic tropes, all in the context of greater openness to anti-Semitism within the Republican Party in the age of Trumpism. But first, just a quick thought to take with you. I want to acknowledge up front the tension that sometimes exists between anti-Blackness and anti-Semitism. Concern over anti-Semitism can sometimes actually be a form of anti-Blackness in disguise and vice versa, in sort of a divide-and-conquer strategy. For instance, today's show addresses the perpetuation of anti-Semitic tropes by three famous Black men, and someone with racist motivations could take the same set of stories and use it as an opportunity to criticize Black anti-Semitism in order to stoke anti-Blackness. That's not what we're doing. The races of Ye, Kyrie Irving, and Dave Chappelle certainly influence the dynamics of the discussion about what they each said, as you will soon hear. For us, it's the celebrity and influence of these three that make their recent comments worthy of discussion and related to one another, not so much their races. I think the episode will speak for itself, and it'll be clear where we're coming from, but I also wanted to set the stage now so that you know that we know what we're dealing with right from the start. And now, onto the show. Clips today are from All In With Chris Hayes, This Is Democracy, In The Thick, The Philosopher's Zone, Edge of Sports, CBS Mornings, Jamel Cannon, and What's Right with an additional members-only clip from Arts and Ideas. And stay tuned at the end, where I describe exactly why I didn't include Jon Stewart's interview with Stephen Colbert discussing Dave Chappelle and anti-Semitism. This weekend, the ex-president of the United States threatened America's Jews. On Sunday morning, Donald Trump took to his fake Twitter website to brag about how no president has done more for Israel than him. But American Jews, he said, are not grateful. Quote, U.S. Jews have got to get their act together and appreciate what they have in Israel before it is too late. Now, to some degree, we've all become inured to this kind of disgusting rhetoric. It's certainly not a new take from Donald Trump, who has always, always been clear that he sees Jews, Jewish Americans, First and foremost, as loyal subjects of the state of Israel, not fundamentally American, fundamentally foreign. He has repeatedly referred to Israel as American Jews country, to its leaders as their leaders. Just listen to how he spoke to the attendees at a White House Hanukkah celebration in 2018. I want to thank Vice President Mike Pence, a tremendous supporter, tremendous supporter of yours. And Karen, and they go there, and they, uh, they love your country. They love your country. And they love this country. That's a good combination, right? And David Friedman, who I don't know if David's here. Your ambassador is great. Oh. Now, just to be clear, you say, this is to American Jews. Your country. They love your country and this country. And I should note that David Friedman, he's talking about David Friedman. He was the U.S. ambassador to Israel, not the Israeli ambassador, which is to say, At that point, David Friedman was all of our ambassador as Americans. He represented our American government. He wasn't some special foreign Jewish dignitary. And of course, according to Donald Trump, American Jews who don't support him are not sufficiently loyal to Israel. In my opinion, you 
you vote for a Democrat, you're being very disloyal to Jewish people and you're being very disloyal to Israel. We have to get the people of our country, of this country, to love Israel more. I have to tell you that. We have to do it. We have to get them to love Israel more because you have people that are Jewish people that are great people. They don't love Israel enough. So this has all been here in front of all of us from the beginning. It's all a natural culmination of all that, that anti-Semitism that Donald Trump lashed out like this weekend saying Jews better appreciate what they have before it's too late. And again, you can interpret those exact words however you want. You can come up with defenses for why he was talking about this or that. The message and the threat are very clear. Get your act together, American Jews. And again, you can see this and you can say, well, look, it's Donald Trump. He he tried to ban a billion people across the world who are Muslim. He told American congressmen to go back to their country. We all know what he's like. And we know the Republican Party will remain utterly devoted to him no matter what awful, awful, outrageous thing he says. But here's the thing. This is bigger than that. And I think it's genuinely much more disturbing. So take this tweet uh, from the staff of the Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee. They're the minority committee, although they have a good shot of being the majority. And they've carved out a niche, this particular Twitter handle, I don't know who runs it, uh, of regularly tweeting like intentionally outrageous inflammatory things. And October 6th, they wrote simply Kanye Elon Trump, which is, I got to say, actually a pretty effective, succinct, honest expression of their worldview. Like, that's what they like. That's their Mount Rushmore. Antisocial people who act like enormous jackasses and bullies. That is actually the simplest version of the Republican medical worldview. <laughs> of course, that tweet came at a moment of peak right-wing celebration of one Kanye West after he wore a t-shirt declaring white lives matter. And Fox News host Tucker Carlson flew across the country to go kiss his ring and was just delighted. He invited Kanye to show for a fawning interview, introducing him as some sort of misunderstood creative genius. The enemies of his ideas dismissed West, as they have for years, as mentally ill. Too crazy to take seriously. Look away. Ignore him. He's a mental patient. There's nothing to see here. But is West crazy? You can judge for yourself as you watch what we're about to show you. He has his own ideas. We can say that. Creative people tend to. That's why they're artists, not actuary. But crazy? That was not our conclusion. In fact, we've rarely heard a man speak so honestly and so movingly about what he believes. But again, you can judge for yourself. And then Tucker had to sit there the whole time being like, yes, yes, Kanye, more and more. By the way, Kanye West is a musical genius. Absolutely. You know, Bobby Fischer was a genius at chess. You know, genius is a complicated thing. But as it turns out, uh, the viewers of that show actually couldn't even do the thing they were set up to do, which was judge for themselves. That's Remember, the whole setup for this is they say he's nuts. Take a look for yourself. What do you think? Because Tucker edited out several of West's most disturbing statements, including this anti-Semitic comment. My kids are going to a school that teaches black kids a complicated Kwanzaa. I prefer my kids knew Hanukkah than Kwanzaa. At least it will come with some financial engineering. (laughs) (laughs) You know, because the Jews finance, they're good with money. But that wasn't in the interview, so you couldn't judge that based on what he said. But again, that was just the tip of the iceberg, okay? Because the very next day, Kanye tweeted that he was going to go, quote, quote, death con three on Jewish people. And then a 
um, well, a fairly uh, deranged uh, thing about how he, black people are the actual Jews, which comes from a whole complicated corner of the Internet I won't get into. But those same conservatives who were praising Kanye just days before, who just decry, they love nothing more than to go crazy about any perceived anti-Semitism for their political enemies, particularly Muslim women who are Democrats in Congress, the way Donald Trump does, they were all silent, remain silent. As Kanye has said, he's going to go death con three on the Jews. And not only that, he hasn't stopped. Again, this is one day after the interview. He's ramped up his rhetoric. Yesterday, he pops on a podcast where he rants about Jewish control of the media, arguing that Jews control every influential industry and use it to exploit others, while calling Disney a, quote, Jewish platform and blaming Jewish Zionists for spreading stories about his ex-wife, Kim Kardashian, and her ex-boyfriend, Pete Davidson. Textbook stuff, folks. Read a book. There is a reason why the people marching with the tiki torches in Charlottesville, the very fine people, as Donald Trump once described them, claimed were defending their Confederate heritage. There is a reason those men you see there were chanting, Jews will not replace us and blood and soil. This is not a fluke. It's not like, oh, wow, weird. Anti-Semitism over there and anti-Semitism over there is popping up a lot. The kind of right-wing spaces, discourses, that Kanye West and Donald Trump are occupying, I, I suspect the kinds of stuff they're getting fed into their brains by the parts of the internet they're looking at, have always bent towards anti-Semitic conspiracies, specifically about Jews pulling the puppet strings and controlling the world, controlling the media and Hollywood and finance. And right-wing politics, as currently embodied by MAGAism, which is the dominant ethos of one of two America's major parties, has always been and will always be fundamentally a threat to tolerance and pluralism that will inevitably target Jews. How do we know that we're seeing more anti-Semitism, more of the kinds of incidents that Zachary describes? The truth is, we actually don't. I mean, we do know, that, of course, that there have been some terrifying, high-profile, violent incidents in Poway, California, in Pittsburgh, in, in Texas. And I do think we can say that it, it's hard to find recent precedents like that. But one of the challenging things about saying that anti-Semitism is rising in general, though people say it all the time, is, first of all, that the data collection systems are not very good for various reasons. And secondly, that there is not actually a consensus definition of anti-Semitism. So there's a very quite fierce debate about whether certain kinds of things like opposing the existence of Israel as a Jewish state or wanting to boycott Israel are anti-Semitic. And depending on how one comes down on those questions, that of course will influence how much anti-Semitism one sees. So it's not actually as simple a question as one might think to say that anti-Semitism is rising. And what's your perception, Peter, as someone who follows this closely and I think is very fair-minded about it? What's, what's your perspective? I think that Donald Trump certainly trafficked in more anti-Semitic tropes, the idea that Jews only care about money, the idea that Jews are loyal to Israel, than any president in recent decades. You have to go back quite a while to find presidents who spoke that way. And I think that is significant. And I, I think that Trump, Donald Trump also created a culture on the American right, parts of the American right, 
that kind of glory in transgressing certain norms of decency. And one way of transgressing those norms is to flirt with anti-Semitism. I also think that the backlash against globalization and against immigration and a desire for a kind of white, uh, kind of ethno-nationalism that would make sure that white Christian Americans remain on top, that can often, that often also blurs into anti-Semitism. So I think those things are significant cultural developments. I'm not saying I don't think anti-Semitism is rising. If I had to bet, I would say it is. I just think it's actually difficult to prove empirically. Right, right. And I guess I guess for me, Peter, as someone who has, you know, spent so many years teaching about the horrors of uh, anti-Semitism in Germany, in our own country, and teaching to what appears to be a very receptive audience of students and writing for what appears to be a very receptive reading audience, how is it possible that that anti-Semitism remains so prevalent in our society. Why has it not gone away? Why are you not saying, wow, I, I see a reduction in anti-Semitism because of all the work we've done as educators? Why have we failed? Well, but I actually think you're getting something which is really important for us not to forget, which is there is an enormous amount of philo-Semitism in the United States. We shouldn't lose track of that. In fact, there was some tolling, I think, done by Pew recently that showed that American Jews are the most highly esteemed religious group in the United States. One of the interesting things about American Jews is they're actually quite highly esteemed, essentially on both sides of America's partisan and ideological divide, although perhaps for different reasons. Whereas if you look at evangelical Christians, they're much less esteemed, white evangelical conservative Christians, less esteemed by progressives. And, and sadly, if you look at more uh, Muslims, for instance, they're much less esteemed among conservative Americans. So there is, and, and, Jew, and American Jews have, are very firmly embedded in both American political parties, from the really the bottom to the to the top. So I think it's important for us not to lose sight of that. But I, I do think that anti-Semitism, although it's different than other, it has its own particular contours and features, also tends to rise and fall often with a general hostility to outsiders, um, whether it's immigrants, Muslims, black Americans. And so you see that in a lot of these cases where you have these terrible, violent attacks, these people also had animus against other groups as well. And you see in some of the other cases, for instance, the terrible massacre in, in Buffalo recently, where a black Americans were killed, that that shooter's manifesto had an enormous amount of anti-Semitism in it. So there is a kind of ideological stew here, which tends to often tell a story. And the story is often something along the lines of it's a hideous story. The story is basically that America is being invaded and taken over by non-white people, by by, by Latinos, by, by blacks, by Muslims. And the Jews are secretly aiding that because they are the kind of sinister evil geniuses, the kind of George Soros figure looms large in this, who are essentially organizing these hordes of black and brown people to come and, and destroy the United States. I think what you're talking about is in many ways an old story and certainly one that seems very familiar to anyone who is a serious student of history. But is there a way in which this is also a story of, of new technology and perhaps a social media or internet landscape that is not regulated or truthful as it should be? Yeah, I mean, I think that the technology allows people to find one another and create online communities. 
um, that, that can then reinforce their own pathology. So if we think about uh, Henry Ford's newspaper, what was it called? The, Dear, the Dearborn something, I think, you know, where he was basically publishing the protocols of the elders of Zion. They right. were distributing it for dealerships, right? So obviously the technology allow now is you to be much more global and move much more quickly. And I think especially in an era where people are often isolated from their neighbors and certainly because of COVID, people then find these online communities and then you sometimes have these algorithms which essentially take whatever you're looking for online and give you even more pure and, and kind of more dramatic uh, versions of that. And so you can then see how people go down this rabbit hole. I've seen some interesting, you know, s- some suggestions that this process of radicalization when it comes to, let's say, white nationalist anti-Semites has a lot in common with the process of, of radicalization that we see with people who end up in ISIS. And I want to connect this, Peter, to something else you've written a lot about, U.S. views, American views of Israel. One of the things I find paradoxical is that in the last 10 to 20 years, it appears to me, and I know you've written about this, that Americans feel more more support. They express more support for Israel. Whether they feel more connected or not, I guess, is more complicated. But they express support for Israel across the political spectrum, especially non-Jews, than they did before. But yet we also see these lingering anti-Semitic attitudes, uh, sometimes in the same communities. How is that possible? How do we understand that? I would say a couple of things. First of all, what's happened to American support for Israel is that like so much else in, a, in American politics, it's become bifurcated along partisan lines. So what you see is that while overall U.S. support for Israel hasn't really changed that much, What's happened is that Republican support has grown and Democratic support, particularly among younger people and among self-described liberals, has gone down. And so on, in, in very progressive spaces, you now have a very live debate over the whole question of the legitimacy of uh, not just Israeli policy, but of, of a Jewish state, of a state that by law and by its own self-identification privileges Jews over Palestinians. And That move and also a move towards boycotting Israel, given that there seems no for people, some for people who are upset about the denial of Palestinian freedom, there seems no other way but to put pressure on Israel to try to change a human rights situation that I think they see and I would agree is intolerable. Now, this gets interpreted as anti-Semitism by many American politicians and also many American Jewish organizations. I actually don't think it's anti-Semitism. Um, I don't think calling for equality under the law between Israelis and uh, Israeli Jews and Palestinians is anti-Semitic. But what does happen is that sometimes people take out their hostility towards Israel on Jews that they tragically kind of blur the line between Israel as a state who has policies and even who has an entire constitutional system that one might oppose, and Jews who then become stand-ins and representatives for Israel, whether it means that a Jewish student on campus is asked to kind of justify or defend a position on Israel when they should not have to do that, or is held responsible even worse for a position, or even worse, in which Jews are actually attacked you see this perhaps more in Europe than the United States, but it happens here because people are, and this particularly, there's some studies that show that this rise in anti-Semitic violence tends to increase when in proportion to the number of Palestinians killed by the IDF. And so hmm. it is a terribly misguided uh, and indeed anti-Semitic way to take out your frustrations with the Israeli state. 
And, and what about on the right? Uh, my, my grandmother always warned that certain Christians, she thought, who wanted to see Jews back in, in Israel, that it wasn't really to help the Jews, and that there was actually at the core of that something that was, was dangerous for Jews. Do, do, do you see some of that in the sort of religious dispensationalism, the evangelical desire to sometimes flagrantly support the state of Israel and its, its more belligerent policies? I do, but I think we should admit that Jews are not of one opinion about this, right? There are, there are a significant number of Jews, particularly in the Orthodox community in the United States and in Israel, who are quite happy to have the support of, of kind of people on the political right in the United States, evangelical Christians, and around the world. Viktor Orban, for instance, although he's expressed anti-Semitic tropes against George Soros in Hungary, is a big fan of Israel. The way I would put it is this. I think that people on the right, whether they're in the United States or in Europe or even other places, really like the idea that states should be owned by a particular dominant ethno-religious racial group. That's what they want for their own countries. That often makes them very admiring of Israel because Israel is such a state. It has democratic features, particularly for Jews, but it is an ethnocracy. It is a country that is built around the ethno-racial, religious identity of one particular group. It has a very extreme immigration policy to maintain its demographic character, which is exactly what conservatives in Europe and the United States want. So there's deep admiration and even seeing Israel as a kind of model. On the other hand, often when those people look at the Jews in their own countries, they feel like the Jews in their own countries are part of the opposition to the political project they're trying to create because those people oppose the idea of, of defining these countries in Christian terms and often ally themselves with other marginalized groups, whether they're LGBT folks or black folks or immigrants, in pushing for a civic nationalism, which is based on the idea that no ethnic or racial or religious group should be able to claim ownership of the state. And this is what produces the dichotomy often in which you see a, a deep admiration and even love for the state of Israel, but often a kind of adversarial view towards the Jews in one's own country. We got to talk about this. Another dude. Yes, the, the problem with the dudes. I apologize for the dudes as a dude here. Um, <laughs> moving on to our second topic. Which is about, Ye, the artist also known as Kanye West. So in recent weeks, Ye has been repeating hateful, anti-Semitic stereotypes about Jewish people in interviews and on social media. He was restricted from using Twitter, although he might come back now, I'm sure, like now that Elon Musk is letting everyone come back. Uh, I'm just having Twitter issues. Got oh, Me too. Coming to terms with that. Also, he was also restricted on Instagram. As a result, and companies including Balenciaga, CAA, and Gap also cut ties with him. And on Tuesday, Adidas followed by terminating their contract with him. We also saw an incident this past weekend where members of a hate group gave the Nazi salute and hung banners over a freeway in Los Angeles. You know, one of those overpasses mm -hmm, where, you know, mm -hmm. you see everywhere in L.A., including one that read, Kanye is right about the Jews. Oh, Jesus Christ. Ye is not new to controversy. You know, we understand this. You know, in 2018, he calls slavery a choice. And, you know, black folks have been calling out his anti-black and racist behavior for years. I've been following it all. 
I don't want to give this guy too much of a platform, but it is what people have been talking about. So, Mariana Hossa, what are you thinking? Well, I'm sorry, I'm just not a Kanye West fan. And I was, you know, as a hip hop head, when he came out, he was transformational. So I'm just. And I understand that. You know, I'm very picky about certain things, obviously, on my social media. But I did put a couple of things out about this because it is a moment to address anti-Semitism straight up. Yep. Um, I was horrified by, you know, seeing that clip where he's like, I can say whatever the hell I want. The thing about it, me and Adidas, is like, I could literally say anti-Semitic and they can't drop me. I could say anti-Semitic things and Adidas can't drop me. And I was like, you are so off, pobrecito, también, but also no, I don't really feel uh, warm and fuzzy to him. I think, you know, we particularly, our team wanted to single out Karen Atiyah's Washington Post op-ed this week, which really goes to a, a deeper level, right? Because as you say, black people have been talking about this for a long time. About, yeah, 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 exactly. They've been slamming him for years. For his anti-blackness. Yeah. And so then all of a sudden now is when, you know, kind of white structures are able to cancel, get rid of, move on from yay. So she just says, I I think she she said it really great. The only real victor in the anti-Semitism, anti-blackness struggle Olympics is white supremacy. The rules of racial capitalist hierarchy, Mm. racial capitalist hierarchy, okay, Mm -hmm. means that white men who traffic in anti-blackness and anti-Semitism manage to withstand social pressure from the groups that they attack, i.e. she singles out Tucker Carlson. And Joe Rogan, who said the N-word. And Joe Rogan, okay. And like, he's still around, you know what I mean? It's like, and and I will say one thing, Maria, I'm so sick of the phrase cancel culture when it comes to, like, making comments and you have private, you know, agreements with major companies any person with a brain would know that a contract has a morals clause. And let's just say this. If I was saying these comments for Futuro Media, you know, Mariana Jose would be like, yo, you know what I mean? I, I'm done. Like, yeah. I'm done. Like, there, there are certain things that you have to behave professionally. So I'm just done with this whole, like, cancel. It's like, you said these words. There are consequences. This holiday season, the easiest way to get all of your gifting done while supporting Best of Left is to just remember one URL, bestofleft.com slash holiday. From there, we link to our two favorite ways to buy books, both physical and audio, as well as our merch store, where you can get our designs, of course, along with the great works from thousands of other artists at the same time. And we get a commission on everything you buy. Not to mention, of course, we also have Best of the Left gift memberships for the real intellectuals on your list. For books, both Bookshop and Libro are the best way to go because their whole business model is set up to help support local brick and mortar bookshops, not attempt to run them out of business. And both offer great gifting options. For instance, Libro offers audiobook credit bundles, which is great for gifts. And here's why. When you buy audiobook credit bundles, they are at a discounted price. And when your recipient redeems them, they don't have to worry about the price at all. Nearly all of Libro's books are available for the cost of one credit, regardless of what their normal dollar value is. So you get to give more for less, and your giftee doesn't have to think about money at all and can simply pick which books they want and pay one credit per title. And for our merch store, 
Obviously, Best of Left Gear is great, but it may not be right for everyone on your list. Seriously, feel free to explore the entirety of the store because it is full of amazing designs that you can put on tees and other items. Honestly, one of my favorite parts of the holidays is watching the commission emails roll in, not because I'm getting rich, I'm not really, but because I get to see what people bought without having any idea who bought them, of course. Your, your privacy is secured, but I get to see what people bought, and I have seen some amazing designs get purchased in previous years, so you're definitely going to want to check that out. And finally, Best of Left gift memberships I think are probably fairly self-explanatory. It's a great way to directly support the show and help spread the joy of Best of Left to those on your list. So again, that one URL is bestofleft.com slash holiday. There's also a link in the show notes and a big banner on our homepage so you can't miss it. bestofleft.com slash holiday. I'd like to turn to anti-Semitism as a particular branch of conspiracy theory. You've written about how the puzzle-solving aspect of conspiracy theorizing can often receive support from fantasy. What role does fantasy play in anti-Semitic imagining? Well, there is this figure of the Jew, and once again, I'm, I'm using uh, quotation marks there because it's clearly not actual Jews uh, that are playing this role within the imagination of the anti-Semite, but it's this aesthetic entity. It's a figure that plays the role of what I call a, a substantive symbol, which is distinct from formal symbols, the kind that you find in, in mathematics or logic. The substantive symbol of the Jew uh, has both uh, certain trans-historical formal properties, but these are combined with evolving contents, uh, and that's where you get these different myths and conspiracies, such as that uh, Jews uh, enjoy killing babies and using their blood for religious rituals, or uh, that they're behind engineering immigration policy in order to increase the non-white uh, population. All of that seems to me to be indicative of the fantasy that is underlying uh, a big part of conspiracy theorizing. And that, again, is one of the major modes of the aesthetic. When you use your imagination not to capture something real, when, for example, you are in a conversation and you're trying to be empathetic to your interlocutor, uh, but rather you just let it run free, well, that's fantasy, and uh, that plays a major role uh, in the enjoyment of conspiracy theories. And the thing about anti-Semitism is that sooner or later, it always ends up taking the form of a conspiracy theory. Yeah, it seems to me that there's a connection here between the aesthetic pleasure you're describing and the kind of pleasure that people take in narrative, you know, that being swept away by an exciting story, in this case, the, the various accounts of Jewish villainy that we see being told and retold down the centuries. It's very much like a literary encounter, isn't it? That that pleasure that, that we all take in, in hearing a very conventional story told very conventionally with all the familiar elements in place. Yes, and, and, and once again, these stories are, are populated by this figure of the Jew, who is also someone that the anti-Semite savors, uh, savoring being one of the other modes of the aesthetic, uh, the appreciation of beauty or even ugliness. 
So you can think of how anti-Semites savor the exaggerated hooked noses, dark beady eyes and drooping eyelids of the ugly, swarthy, hairy Jew uh, depicted in many relished caricatures and cartoons. Or you can think of the seductive allure of la belle juive, a figure either sinful or noble. Uh, Anti-Semites simply eat this stuff up because they enjoy it immensely. And so once again, we have fantasy playing a role in making conspiracy theories a source of aesthetic pleasure. So if we go back then to our earlier discussion of atomism and monism, that, that metaphysical framework that undergirds conspiracy theorizing, how does that framework lead some people to focus on Jews in particular as the primary object of suspicion? Well, specifically when it comes to monism, I, I, I don't think that the muriology, the, the, the science of parts and wholes, and so atomism versus holism plays a, a major role here. But the monism-pluralism uh, dichotomy does. And that's because, historically, uh, Jews uh, have been associated with non-monistic ways of seeing the world. That's true both of religious Jews and secular Jews. So if you look at Religious Jews such in philosophy, such as Hannah Arendt or Emmanuel Levinas, Judith Butler, or myself for that matter, you have the idea that it's God who is one, as Moses purportedly declared. And the implication here is that since the world must be intrinsically different from its creator, uh, then the world must be, if not pluralist, uh, then at least uh, disunified. As for secular Jews... While there's not a few of them, at least amongst the leading intellectuals, that have been monists, so you can think of Spinoza to Marx, Freud, and Einstein, many others have been otherwise, from Isaiah Berlin to Jacques Derrida, Judas Klar, and Michael Walzer. Or you can even look to Yiddish, uh, secular Yiddish culture. I don't know if you uh, like the uh, show Curb Your Enthusiasm created by uh, Larry David. <laughs> I like it very much, yeah. It's, I mean, the character he plays, a fictionalized version of himself, is a classic within uh, secular Yiddish culture. It's known as the Shlemiel, which is essentially a bungler who's always either breaking things or stumbling on already broken ones in ways that make the situation worse. Well, much of the humor of the show revolves around conflicts over minutiae in daily social life in which Larry takes one side and some unfortunate friend or acquaintance or passerby takes the other. And what happens, the outcome here is that you highlight that there are these small and seemingly irreconcilable gaps in the everyday. And in doing so, Curb Your Enthusiasm sends the message. Uh, it's a lot of fun, but there's also something serious uh, being said. And the message is that the world is broken. And that, once again, is a, a theme that runs through uh, much uh, Jewish uh, thought. And so if you're a monist, whether because you subscribe to the doctrine explicitly, because you're a philosopher, or just because you tend to approach uh, the world that way without even ever, ever having heard of the philosophy, if you think that the way things are meant to be is they're all supposed to fit together in a unified oneness. Well, here's this culture within the West uh, that historically has stood for disunity uh, rather than unity. And so there you go. That's why 
those who are monists and are vulnerable to conspiracy theories tend to focus on the Jew as uh, their targets. Thanks to Jeff Bezos, Kyrie Irving is using his giant NBA platform to promote a movie available on Amazon that luxuriates in the heat of anti-Semitism like Steve Bannon at a cross burning. The film Hebrews to Negroes promotes the idea that the Holocaust, which affected my family intimately, was a lie. It promotes the idea of a link between us modern Jews and Satan worship. It includes quotes attributed to Adolf Hitler about how fraudulent modern Jews are. We aren't real Jews. We are apparently instead focused on world domination. And for what it's worth, I've never understood why if Jews are set on world domination, I've never been invited to any of the meetings. To be clear, I've always advocated that athletes should feel free to use their platform to talk about whatever they like. I've written in staunch defense of Maya Moore and Colin Kaepernick and all athletes who do more than just shut up and play. But that doesn't mean I or any of us should just applaud every time an athlete has something to say about life outside the lines. That would be patronizing and deeply condescending. We should take an athlete's ideas seriously enough to question and challenge them if we disagree, especially if they promote hate. Irving is not a wayward teen who needs to be protected and defended by not only his legions of followers, but also those dizzy with the romanticism of an athlete speaking out. He is a fully grown and exceptionally wealthy man who has made the journey from COVID denialism to posting a video by racist anti-Semitic child massacre aficionado Alex Jones to now promoting more lies that aim to divide and demonize. Despite efforts to be coy, Kyrie knows exactly what he's doing. He knows his ideas are actually threats and doesn't seem bothered by this. As he said in his disturbing press conference two Saturdays back, I'm only going to get stronger because I'm not alone. I have a whole army around me. If these views sound familiar, real Jews and fake Jews, global domination, Holocaust denialism, the work of Alex Jones, it's because they're being widely propagated or hinted at by white supremacists and the right wing of the Republican Party. Similar ideas have recently been expressed by Donald Trump, Pennsylvania gubernatorial candidate Doug Mastriano, and fascist lawyer for hire Jenna Ellis. And that's what disturbs me the most about Kyrie, Yay, and the ways that these ideas are finding shallow purchase among a thin layer of black celebrities and athletes. This is a fraught and tense time, and there is a fraught and tense historical relationship between black and Jewish people that demands serious and honest discussion. There is a history of Jewish radicals in the 1930s organizing against racism in northern cities and farmlands of the Jim Crow South. There is history of black people wholeheartedly fighting against fascism, from volunteering for the Spanish Civil War to spilling blood in World War II, a war thought to be against the kinds of white supremacist politics represented by Hitler and the Nazi Party. There is a tradition of Jewish participation and martyrdom in the black freedom struggle of the 1950s and 60s. Yet there is also another history. It's a history from earlier last century of Jewish small business owners in black areas of cities around the country, 
the moneyed class and white Christian supremacists had few roots in urban black neighborhoods. But Jews, the former residents of these same quote-unquote ghettos, before migrating out as the Irish did before them, owned shops and small businesses, meaning that the face of economic power and authority was often a Jewish one. Even if that power was not the actual power wielded by industrialists and racist politicians, it became a part of black politics that Jews were responsible for the burdens of racism in black life. These ideas were prominent enough that there is no black leader no black leader who hasn't been confronted with the question of where Jews fit in the struggle for black liberation. Malcolm wrestled with it. Martin wrestled with it. It is a confounding question, and understandably so, because of the historical imbalance in the relationship between Jewish and black communities. But that's also why, for over a century, anti-Semitism has been referred to as the socialism of fools, it can come from a place of hating exploitation and oppression. But when it comes to knowing your enemy, the word Jews becomes a stand-in for exploiters. This is no different from many racial, ethnic, and immigrant groups in a country whose workers have historically, with grand, widely celebrated exceptions, been stubbornly resistant to class struggle. Instead of challenging ingrained issues of race and class that run deeply in the marrow of this rancid economic system, we point fingers at each other, divided and conquered. Let's take the music industry, a deeply parasitic and exploitative business. Generations of black performers were bled dry by this sordid business. But that's not because there was a cabal of secret Jewish executives. It's because the music industry itself is exploitative and racist, no matter who is in the seat of power. Or take the media, allegedly controlled by Jews. That would be news to Rupert Murdoch and Lachlan, his unabashedly racist son. Last I heard, their name wasn't Murdochowitz. It is further confused by fissures in the Jewish community. There are many liberal Jews who are for social justice, who marched in 2020 after the murder of George Floyd, and who overwhelmingly vote Democrat. There are also a growing number of leftist Jews who would stand for the liberation of Palestine before they would ever make excuses or justifications for the actions of the Israeli state. Then there are the hardcore Zionist Jews, beloved by Trump, Ellis, and friends, because they are the quote-unquote real Jews, a trope that dehumanizes and endangers all of us. These Jews have traded rabid support for Israel in return for a blind eye and near silence when the GOP and its allies crank up the anti-Semitism. So who among Jews is friend and who is foe in the fight against oppression? Depends on what Jew you are talking to. There is no united Jewish thought or Jewish cabal. If there were, we'd only argue among ourselves. What terrifies me about the current moment is that Kyrie's politics are migrating and finding a sick alliance among Nazis, fascists, nationalists, and all manner of white supremacists who have long promoted these notions but wanted no part of black politics unless it was about expressing common separatist ideas. It certainly never manifested into solidarity until now. This has expressed itself in the pro-Kanye social media posts by the GOP and that right-wing billionaire child of apartheid, Elon Musk. This expressed itself in a white Nazi rally in Brentwood, California, 
which promoted solidarity for Ye's anti-Semitic rants. Then over the weekend, the message, Kanye is right about the Jews, was projected on the outside of one of the end zones of the Georgia-Florida football game. This is also the case with Steve Bannon championing right-wing black candidates as long as they call for confrontation against his shared enemies. It's ugly, cynical, and racist, and extremely dangerous. Kyrie's film of choice wants people to wake up, but he's just perpetuating a nightmare of division and helplessness. We all need to wake up, but we need to wake up to the fact that the same GOP politicians courting anti-Semites like Ye are also using unprecedentedly racist primist area ads which endanger the entire black community. Jews and all of us need to do more to speak out against that and the racism that assails black life every day. Jews also need to wake up to the idea that silent right-wingers like Representative Lee Zeldin and Ambassador David Friedman will sooner support white supremacists and Christo-fascists than their own community, as long as their friends on the far right support Israel. The fact that their buddies support Israel only because they think a united Israel is a precursor to an end time when all Jews go to hell is never a part of their political calculation. They would rather risk providing support to those who would spur on murderous attacks in our places of worship than link arms with their fellow reform-oriented Jews under attack. Let's all pledge to wake up and learn from the past, but to not be shackled by it. A system that feeds upon division is the problem. The only people who benefit from division are the mega-rich and powerful who come in all religions, frolicking on yachts while the world quite literally burns. The Christo-fascists won't stop with Jews. They'll just be names to check off on a list on their way to other targets. We will either be united in fear, or we will be united against a common enemy. Now, I'm not sure what the future holds, but I don't think it holds much else. and Jewish Americans have linked arm-in-arm in in their fights for equality. Terrence Johnson is an associate professor at Georgetown who teaches a class called Blacks and Jews in America. There's something about religion and politics that are deeply ingrained within the traditions, both of them Blacks and, and American Jews. And so when they see themselves fighting against, say, segregation, Jim Crow, or anti-Semitism, in the back of their mind, they're thinking of the Exodus motif, this idea that God is with them in history. Their intertwined paths brought them together during the Civil Rights Movement. During what became known as Freedom Summer in 1964, two Jewish men and one black man, Andrew Goodman, Michael Schwerner, and James Cheney were murdered in Mississippi while trying to register black Americans to vote. Their deaths and the subsequent media coverage sparked a major change in the portrayal of the movement. America must not remain silent. And at the historic 1963 March on Washington, it was Rabbi Joachim Prince who spoke just before his friend, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Bigotry and hatred are not the most urgent problems. The most shameful and the most tragic problem is silence. But the long-standing relationship has turned fraught at times, with some members of both groups feeling that their concerns were no longer a priority for their partners. 
The Crown Heights riot of 1991 in Brooklyn saw tensions between black and Jewish communities escalate to violence, including the murder of an Australian Jewish student. Both groups are trying to fight against racism, anti-Semitism. Both are trying to assimilate, uh, but both are having a very difficult time in the process. And both are actually pushed and forced into a kind of strange and asymmetrical relationship. But someone who believed in the power of a good relationship was Congressman John Lewis. We sponsored Black Jewish Young Leaders retreats, and Congressman Lewis would spend the evening with us helping Blacks and Jews. Sherry Frank worked side-by-side with Congressman Lewis on the Black Jewish Coalition in Atlanta. We marched to mark important events. We spoke out in support of Renewal and Voting Rights Act. I see the future of Black-Jewish relations even strengthened by the stress and the polarization and the bigotry and anti-Semitism and racism that's just flourishing in our world today. As for Edward Mosberg, he says he will continue until his last breath to bring Blacks and Jews together. Does it feel like African-Americans and Jewish people should be more connected because of our plights? Not more connected. They should be highly connected. Okay, because we went, the Jewish people went through the slavery in Europe. Okay, and the people here were slavery here by the by their own people because it was wrong, wrong, wrong. I was talking to a black man in his early 20s about Kanye, and he said, you know, what Ye said about Jewish people was true. They do control the media. And I started to explain, that's just an old anti-Semitic talking point. Like, nobody ever talks about how the energy sector is controlled by white Christian men. People only mention Jewish people in the media to impact you in a certain direction. He said, how can it be anti-Semitic if it's positive? We saying they got money and they stick together. A lot of times when we talk about Jewish people in the black community, it's framed as if it's a positive. They don't waste their money. They build generational wealth. They invest in businesses. But those actually aren't our original ideas about Jewish people. Those are stereotypes that were given to us. Why would people who hate Jewish people pass down stereotypes that sound positive? When you think of the typical stereotypes about black men, what are they? Dumb, angry, volatile, wasteful, only useful for physical tasks, not useful for using their brains. These stereotypes paint the picture of a group of people who are a drain on society unless they are broken, controlled, imprisoned, or enslaved. And that mentality justifies everything from throwing away our job applications to killing us in the streets. Stereotypes about Jewish people are different. They control the media, they stick together, they keep their money to themselves. Those stereotypes paint a different picture, a picture of a group of people who can compete with, outperform, and even subjugate white people in the open market. Why were white supremacist groups walking through Charlottesville chatting Jews will not replace us? Because while black people were painted to be a drain, Jewish people were painted to be a threat. And they have very specific ideas about what to do with a threat. They just need more support for those ideas. But those stereotypes didn't come from us, and they're not meant to benefit us. They're meant to pit one group against another in support of white supremacy. Kyrie Irving tweeted out a link to a movie that is based on a book. He then claimed in this press conference he had watched the movie. I thought it was totally in play. He had not watched the movie and was just going to double down anyway. I'm still not convinced he watched the whole thing. And I think it is actually his best defense would be, I didn't watch it, man. I saw it. It, it seemed interesting. Some do with, you know, my name means Yahweh, as he explained. So I put it out there, my bad. But he claims not only did he watch it, 
but he also implies he might have read the book. So in the the most the most damning part of the movie and that book, which is why it's being called anti-Semitic, is because it has an alleged quote from Harold Wallace Rosenthal. And it's been debunked as a fake quote years ago. But that quote talks about how the Jews have established five major falsehoods to conceal their nature and protect their status and power. Including on those falsehoods is Holocaust denialism. According to this, again, fabricated quote. He goes on to later in the movie, there is a quote attributed to Hitler that says, quote, because the white Jews know that the Negroes are the real children of Israel and to keep America's secrets, the Jews will blackmail America. They will extort America. Their plan for world domination won't work if the Negroes know who they are. So Kyrie Irving at this press conference talks about it's on Amazon Prime. It's history. It's out there. But it's fabricated history. So now let's go a layer back. That Harold Wallace Rosenthal quote sounds a hell of a lot like some things folks read 100 years ago in a book called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. That again, that was one of the first documented instances of truly damaging fake news. So that was a book that the entire thing was wrote as a fabrication. So folks that wanted reasons to attack and dehumanize, use one of Kyrie's words, Jewish people, wrote a book that was attributed to Jewish people about their plot for world domination and then pretended they discovered it. Do you follow me? So that's what that, and this Harold Wallace Rosenthal quote that is not a real quote from that guy. uh, And I'm not going to get into the full history of that, but it's been since debunked many times over. It's a lot like the protocols of the elders of Zion. What? So, Kyrie says, did I hurt or harm anyone? Well, not directly and not yet. However, and Kyrie's big on history, but it's important you know the actual history. So the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, that book, was in in the 1930s taught to school children in, you guessed it, Nazi Germany as a way to prime these young people for the hatred and the coming purge of Jewish people during the rise of Hitler and, you know, Nazi Germany. Okay? So all of this stuff, Kyrie and Kanye and so many of these folks think they're discovering something think they've uncovered real truth when it's the same playbook that other folks have been going by intentionally or unintentionally for decades and in some cases centuries. So this all like 
hits close to, it's weird for me, maybe, to care so much about this. But it is such a symptom of a bigger problem. And I said this on Twitter, and I I say it again here. I'm just an Italian, Irish, white guy who was raised Roman Catholic. However, my dear, beloved grandfather who passed before you were born was a Polish Jew. And my wife and my three wonderful children are black. And people have been trying to pit Blacks and Jews against each other for so long. And in so many ways, it's been successful. Some of the, some of the most racially exclusive communities in New York City are the Orthodox Jewish communities that really have no time for black folks. And some of the most racially exclusionary communities are these folks that march up the street from this store. Some of the, some of the black Israelites who echo all of this same anti-Semitic nonsense. And what's such a shame is we can keep to sports. We can go outside of sports. All of our civil rights leaders knew better. MLK marched with rabbis and had no quarter for anti-Semitism. Jackie Robinson wrote, Jackie Robinson wrote a column for, I think it was the New York Post or a New York paper uh, long ago about confronting anti-Semitism. Kareem talks about it to this day. And, and yet it still pervades. And I do empathize with black Americans in that not only was your history stolen from you, and not only do you not, we don't teach it in schools. There's, there is, if you want to learn anything about your ancestors, you have to specialize in it. And even there, it's hard. It's hard to sort everything out. It's the people say what, you know what I mean? Some of the bad actors, racist folks, you're like, it's so ridiculous. Why can't I have white pride when there's black pride? Well, there is white pride all over the place. It's just us white folks get to narrow it down to Irish American pride or Italian pride or Polish pride or Russian pride. Black Americans don't get that luxury. They don't, they, they had stripped from them the, just get the continent of Africa and really their experience here in America. So you can, it's, so it's, it's different and it's, it takes, you got to peel back the onion one layer to understand that. So I understand black people wanting to feel like, God damn it, they're not teaching me this in school. I, I, I'm going to go find my history. But this is where we all as a society are in such a dangerous place. Because nobody seems to have the goddamn ability to differentiate history from a well-produced YouTube video. 
We've just heard clips today, starting with All In with Chris Hayes, discussing anti-Semitism from both the pop culture side with Ye and the political side with Trump and the likes of Tucker Carlson. This is Democracy did a deep dive on the dynamics of anti-Semitism and the sort of love-hate relationship white supremacists have with Israel as an ethno-state. In the Thick discussed the dynamics of anti-blackness and anti-Semitism in the context of Ye's recent comments. The Philosopher's Zone looked at some of the elements of storytelling that have supported anti-Semitic tropes through the ages. Edge of Sports discussed Kyrie Irving, conspiracy theories, and the need to resist the divide-and-conquer strategy. CBS Mornings produced a piece on the historical ties between the Black and Jewish communities fighting for social justice. Jamel Cannon on TikTok laid out why some of the anti-Semitic stereotypes can sound positive on the surface but still work to build anti-Jewish sentiment. And What's Right also dove into the debunking of the anti-Semitic video Kyrie Irving shared and again stressed the importance of resisting the divide-and-conquer strategy to squash solidarity between the Black and Jewish communities. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from Arts and Ideas, which laid out a fascinating story about anti-Semitism in the Russian Revolution, which claimed to stand against racism, but turned out to be a great example of the malleability of anti-Semitism. I learned that in Ukraine, one of the most common slogans of the Red Army in 1919 is, smash the Jews, long live Soviet power. Smash the Jews, long live Soviet power. What is going on here? How could anti-Semitism find a home within a revolutionary project that had declared its opposition to all racisms? A key feature of modern anti-Semitism has been the way it has conjured an image of the Jew as an archetype which stands above and in conflict with the labouring poor. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is John. I found your podcast a few months ago. The content in this podcast is exactly what I need in my life at this time. I just finished the most recent podcast and want to share my gender policing story. This is a thread that travels through my life. During elementary school in the 1980s, I was at a friend's house when she suggested we play dress up and role play. I decided I wanted to wear a skirt. She let me borrow one of hers. I put it on and it felt absolutely amazing. I wore it that entire day. Once my parents found out, I was immediately reprimanded and told that boys do not wear skirts because they are only for girls. I remember expressing my frustration at the injustice of gender inequality in clothing. I just accepted it as fact and moved on. I was, after all, just a child. Fast forward to the 1990s. I was in high school when Good Morning America did a story on men's dresses. I expressed my delight in seeing men in dresses. My mother immediately reminded me that the Bible states men could not wear dresses. I pushed back. But how can someone argue with strong religious ideology? We were part of an independent fundamental Baptist, IFB, church at the time. By 2006, I was exiting the IFB cult. I bought my first kilts that spring. I wore one to the church we were attending for a midweek service. I was promptly told again that I was not dressing like a man and to never wear it to a church service again. 
It took many more years before my family and I left that place. We are currently part of a conservative Presbyterian church. In 2019, I started wearing skirts in public. Unless I am working, I wear a skirt just about everywhere I go. I do get some gender policing from members of the church we are a part of now, but I just go about my life and ignore most people. Thanks for taking the time to read my story. Keep up the good work. The podcast is absolutely amazing. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. First of all, thanks to John for writing in and sharing that story. If you have your own gender policing stories, I'm happy to continue that conversation when we come back from the holidays. I started the conversation with a you know relatively uh, low level offense from my childhood so feel free to you know dig deep from the archives of your life or you know something that happened to you yesterday big or small and now to wrap up here we're going to address Dave Chappelle who had a monologue on Saturday night live which I agree with the critics uh, who said that it helped perpetuate Jewish stereotypes and tropes that are anti-Semitic. What that says about Dave Chappelle's personal inner feelings and what's in his heart is much less interesting to me. In response to that, Jon Stewart, unsurprisingly, who is both Jewish and a friend of Dave Chappelle, went on Stephen Colbert's show and discussed anti-Semitism amongst other things. And that interview also had uh, quite a mixed reaction. Uh, for instance, I, I just found two like vaguely representative articles from forward.com, which I had not heard of before. It describes itself as Jewish, independent, and nonprofit. And there are two articles, John Stewart is right about how to fight anti-Semitism and should maybe be our spokes-Jew. And another article was titled, John Stewart is not our spokes-Jew. He normalized hate speech. Just to give you a sense of the spectrum. The first basically just argued that John Stewart did a good job, was funny, made some really nuanced and thoughtful points, and that is true. But the second article focused on his missteps uh, that he made in the process pointing out that he minimized Chappelle's anti-Semitic remarks by comparing Chappelle's comments during the opening monologue of a nationally televised TV show to internet comment sections, sort of saying that if it's normal in one place, then it doesn't matter if it's being perpetuated elsewhere. Everybody obviously calls me and says, like, do you see Dave on SNL? And I'm like, yes, we're very good friends. I always watch and send nice texts. He normalized anti-Semitism with the monologue. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I don't know if you've been on comment sections on most news articles, but uh, it's pretty normal. And he says this as if to normalize means to be singularly responsible for normalizing, which is, of course, not true. It is a phenomenon that is cumulative, which means that every instance of it is bad. Uh, he, he went on and sort of, I mean, this one was more squishy. John Stewart, it, through use of what I would call imprecise language, arguably perpetuated the stereotype that black people 
are anti-Semitic. He doesn't say that exactly, but it is like it comes through in an implication. Look at it from a, a black perspective. It's a culture that feels that its wealth has been extracted by different groups, whites, Jews, things. Whether it's true or not isn't the issue. That's the feeling in that community. And he also erased the existence of black Jews, which, I mean, to be fair, basically everybody does. It's, you know, it it is a small community. Not many Jews are black and not many black people are Jews, but there are black Jews. And so to describe these two groups as though there is a clean dividing line between them is an erasure. And so the article criticizing John Stewart has this quote that I think is illustrative. It says, when influential people like Stewart speak over black Jews as if they don't exist, it means they are left with the burden of pushing back against anti-Semitism disguised as being pro-black and anti-blackness disguised as fighting anti-Semitism, which I think sort of goes to the core of the message that we've been trying to get through in today's entire episode. And now, somewhat aside from exactly what was said, my take is that John Stewart just wasn't really a great choice of a person to discuss the issue for the exact reason that people were so anxious to hear his perspective. He's good friends with Dave Chappelle. I mean, asking someone to come on national television to criticize a close friend of theirs is never going to end well. They're either going to ruin their friendship in the process, pull their punches in order to preserve their friendship, which is basically what everybody in every friendship would do, or simply have a bad take in which they honestly deny that criticism is warranted. But there's one last thing that I I think is worth criticizing that I have not seen addressed elsewhere. I'm sure it has been, but I just haven't seen it. Jon Stewart's take on why institutional reactions to anti-Semitism from people like Kyrie Irving, who was benched by the Nets, uh, is wrong because that's not the best way to get someone like Kyrie Irving to change his mind. Penalizing somebody for having a thought, I don't think is the way to change their minds or or gain understanding. This is a grown-ass man. And the idea that you would say to him, we're going to put you in a timeout. You have to sit in the corner and stare at the wall until you no longer believe that the Jews controlled the international banking system. Like, we have to get past this in the country, the ability to, look, people think this. People think Jews control Hollywood. People think Jews control the banks. And to pretend that they don't and to not deal with it in a straightforward manner, we will never gain any kind of understanding with each other. But what John Stewart is missing here is that changing Kyrie's mind is not, or at least should not be, the driving force behind the actions of his team or the condemnations coming from the public or any other public or institutional reaction. The driving force should be to try to prevent the spread of anti-Semitism to others who may be influenced by people like Ye, Kyrie Irving, or Dave Chappelle. If those three dudes were quietly and personally anti-Semitic, then it would be unfortunate, but not something that required a national conversation in an attempt 
to save these three lost souls from their terrible personal ideas. The whole point of the institutional reaction, losing sponsorships, getting benched, being condemned by thought leaders, these are all because of the threat of spreading anti-Semitism, not because of their personal opinions and the need for those personal opinions to change. So John Stewart started off early with a big logical fallacy comparing Dave Chappelle on national TV to an internet comment section in order to downplay his influence. I mean, honestly, that that was the response. But his biggest misdirection was the foundation on which his entire argument was made. His focus was on the best way to change the minds of the individual offenders. That is not the point. That doesn't mean that having greater open dialogue about anti-Semitism might not be a better way to address the problem, but we still need to go into the discussion with an understanding of what we're trying to accomplish, and Stewart got that exactly wrong. The bottom line for me is that it's a mixed bag. Both of those opposing articles made valid points, and both fall short, just like Jon Stewart did in that interview with Colbert. The focus of most of the coverage has been about Stewart trying to take a more empathetic look, not at anti-Semitism in the abstract, but at why people fall into it and what may be better strategies for combating it. I applaud that kind of empathy when it's employed to gain greater understanding. And that interview was in the running to be included in today's show, but the more I listened to it, the more I found these poison pills in his downplaying of the influence of these celebrities and the logical fallacies and misdirections throughout. John's problem is that in parts of that interview, he's giving a good answer to the wrong question. If you want some thoughtful, nuanced ideas about what it takes to change an individual mind, and more specifically, what isn't likely to work, that's what his comments are about. That just isn't anything to do with the conversation about stopping the spread of dangerous conspiracy theories through celebrity influencers. So even though there's some value to be mined from that discussion, I couldn't justify playing it without tons of explanation and caveats. So now I've explained it and I've run out of time to be able to share it. But if you want to hear it, it's not hard to find and you can check it out yourself. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestoftheleft.com. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, web mastering and bonus show co-hosting and thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support through our patreon page or from right inside the apple podcast app membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. And of course, during the season, you can help us by doing your shopping through our portal at bestoftheleft.com slash holiday. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.